Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, Conversations with Folk in and Around Education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week we are talking to Mary Myatt, education thinker and writer. Now, Mary is someone I could listen to talk all day, (laughs) Um, get a little philosophical at points, but uh, dig in for her thoughts about curriculum, getting back on track, cutting out all the faff and making time to do what really matters to children's learning. As ever, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. And to every single person working in schools, thank you. Thank you for all the wonderful work you continue to do in the face of such huge challenges. That work really never has been more important to the communities you serve. On with the podcast. Hello. Today we are joined by Mary Myatt, who is an education thinker and and writer, I would say a a prolific uh, author. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, one of her books today. So hi there, Mary. Hello there. Very good to be chatting with you this morning. Lovely stuff. You're, I mean, you're a friend, friend of the key. We've we've worked together a number of times, and it's an absolute delight to talk to you about your book, uh, Back on Track. Fewer things, greater depth. Um, I love this book, and I really enjoyed that. There's such a strong sort of depth of feeling about sort of this subject being really important to you. Uh, can you tell me a, a bit about why you wrote the book? Well, what prompted the writing of the book um, was that I was talking to a lot of people in the sector who were saying they were really excited about the curriculum, um, that they were, they were really beginning to ramp it up, but what was holding them back was time. And so it just simply couldn't lift off in the way that they hoped. And um, so it was almost as though it was an add-on for plenty of... Um, people in the sector. Now, not for us, not every school and not every setting is this the case, um, but the fact is because of the quality of education judgment and the inspection framework, you know, for the whole sector, this has gone further up the agenda. And for the most part, you know, people are excited and, and happy to be engaged about it. I mean, they also are concerned about whether they're getting it right. But um, I became increasingly concerned that um, people were saying, well, we'd like to get to grips with this, but we simply don't have the time. And so I decided then um, that I would start unpacking what might be getting in the way of us uh, doing this work. Um, hence the fewer things in greater depth, which is, um, summarizes basically <laughs> the conclusions. No need to read the book, just look at the subtitle. Yeah, I, th- I think um, you you talk about time a lot a lot in it, and you know we everyone feels under under so much pressure to do to do so many things, and we all um, have that limited number of of, of hours in the, in the day, um, and I think that that is a really really important factor, and and as you as you say, it is slightly strange the way that we we got to this point where. Lots of activity is happening in schools. Children are having lots of lessons, doing lots of learning. Um, 
but we had stopped talking about the curriculum and and then we had the you know sort of push from Ofsted and 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 lots of of work and conversations about that that curriculum and it sort of it does seem sort of odd that we that we got to that to that point um and uh and this this book feels feels very well timed when that conversation about curriculum and people looking to to have a more broad and more balanced curriculum and um it has stalled somewhat because we also now have this challenge around around catch up um yeah what do you what do you think you'd be doing if you were if you were running a school right now and and you were facing some of those those challenges um well i think there are a couple of things to say by way of prefacing that answer the first is is that what um, school leaders and teachers are having to cope with at the moment um, is undoubtedly filling their headspace. Um, and so we've only got so much bandwidth to do so much work. We've only got so much capacity. Um, for my view is that this, this uncertainty around children in and out of school um, has to, has to be the first item on the agenda. And it is. We know that it is in school. Um, and I think we've just kind of got to relax into that, that, you know, we might not be able to do the things we'd like to do in relation to curriculum development, etc. My view is that that will come in time. It's, it, we've got to do it um, at a pace which is reasonable in any case. Um, but what I would underpin that by saying in relation to um, children in and out of, of schools and staff as well, um, having to self-isolate, is that, you know, this is about safeguarding. So the arrangements around all this relate to safeguarding. And if there's one fundamental aspect of our work, it is the safeguarding of the young people. Um, without that, you know, we've just got, um, you know, no leg to stand on. Um, in terms of your question about, um, you know, what what would be important for um, people in schools, leaders and teachers in schools, in terms of um, children and catch-up, um, I mean, it's not straightforward. For one thing, I would say that um, we can't gain that time back. We've kind of got to emotionally and psychologically let that go. I mean, we can't have any regrets about what might have been because that is in the past. But what we can do is focus on being as efficient and as purposeful in the time that we are with the children um, and also to draw, for instance, on um, what it is that some of the findings from cognitive science might tell us. Things that is quite helpful to um, draw on is Hattie's um, work on what happened in two jurisdictions where the children were out of school for an extended period. So one was after Hurricane Katrina and the other um, after the earthquake in Auckland. Um, so the children were not in school for extended periods of time. Now, what they found was, was that when there were public examinations again, after those events, the, the pupils and students did better than they had done previously. And then in the subsequent years, they went back down to their normal, you know, uh, levels. Now, Hattie puts this down to, we can disagree with, with his um, analysis, but he puts it down to the fact that teachers were absolutely focused on um, addressing misconceptions, finding out where the gaps were, 
um, and being very precise about uh, concepts and ideas and the material that was being taught. In other words, high quality responsive teaching, um, very, very, very um, purposeful, not, not wasting time, um, which isn't to say that they, you know, cut out on, you know, the emotional and um, personal side of aspects of teaching, but just were much more focused. And so we might disagree, but I think there's something quite helpful in there that um, to focus in on the things that we know are likely to have the greatest difference. Um, and uh, so there's, you know, lots of really helpful work out there. Um, the Advantage um, group of schools, Stuart Locke's um, uh, trust, where, you know, they've, they've made it very precise in terms of the children are out of school. These are the strategies that are going to be most helpful. So I think drawing on what other um, schools are doing, what other academy trusts are doing. And then I would also say, um, you know, one of the most helpful things that I think has come out of the cognitive science is the power of story and actually building in um, as many high-quality texts, both fiction and non-fiction, into the work that we're, that we're doing. And then, of course, if we've got a properly sequenced curriculum that is based around concepts and big ideas, that, again, can save us time um, and, and also deepen children's learning. So just a very quick example of that. Um, you know, I'm thinking about history in primary, where you know, if the children are being taught um, about Magna Carta, and earlier on, they have been um, learning about ancient Greece, then two, uh, against uh, under, underpinning both those um, units within history would be the concept of democracy. And so even if, you know, one of those has had to be curtailed, if we really um, spent time developing the concept of democracy, um, you know, that important concept, then it means that new information, if we're having to shorten the amount of time we go, is going to be much stickier. So I think this is where you know, the headlines from cognitive science can, can be helpful. So, so I guess what you're what you're saying there, um, in answer to the things that you that you that you maybe have to stop doing, is that actually doing doing fewer things in greater depth and ensuring that that children grasp those concepts is is what you should prioritize rather than going on to, to new topics or, or, or new material um absolutely and and this is one of the things that i i i talk about a lot and i've written about it is that it's entirely understandable but um there is pressure on teachers and sometimes they put it on themselves as well and it is understandable to move on to the next part of the lesson or to move on to the next part of the unit before the children are properly secure in what they're being taught at that moment. Um, what I call the curse of content coverage and this idea that, you know, if it's in the, on the plan for that lesson or that series of lessons, if I haven't taught it, I haven't done my job. The point is if the children have not um, got it, they needed more, that was more important. So I think as a sector, we're quite often inclined to think that the piece of paper is more important than the pupils in front of us. And if this isn't a blame game, this is just kind of the pressures that have um, bloated the system, saying that this, 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 but, you know, if they, if they, if they don't know it, it's pointless moving on to the next bit. So I, I would rather um, my pupils knew fewer things really, really well, because new knowledge, new, new information is going to be much stickier. And I'm not saying it's easy, 
Um, but I think as much of it, it's psychological thinking, I'm not doing my job if I don't cover every bit of the content. But I would also say that, you know, the national curriculum, I don't think it is that bloated. I'm very happy for people to come back and say it. But if you look at the English national curriculum, beyond the English and maths, which obviously have got plenty in them because those are fundamental. Um, but apart from history, um, because Michael Gove got his mitts on that, you know, and even then that, that's manageable, I think, um, if you unpick it carefully. But the rest of the national curriculum subjects are actually pretty manageable um, up until the end of Key Stage 3. So sometimes that material has become over bloated, and that's another question because of um, plans that have been written over time and just added to without trimming back or going back to first principles. And I mean, I'm sure other 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 people who've taught will have the experience of when you start a lesson on a topic, assuming that the knowledge from previous units has been absorbed, you realise it hasn't been and you're going back to go forward. And as you say, if the, the concepts are secure, um, you know, you could be tapering and starting from a, a more advanced point to begin with if, if you've got that that understanding there. So I guess it's it's a question of um where you're where you're cutting because you you have actually um clarified those those concepts. And you know, as I mentioned before, you you've been doing a, a lot of work on on curriculum events and, and workshops as well as your your wonderful book um, and I would really recommend to um, to people the, the section at the back of the book which is a goldmine of, of links to high quality resources in in all subjects um, and you know as, as I mentioned got a lot of a lot of schools who who were reviewing their, their curriculum um, uh, recently and, and, and thinking about that um, maybe you could you could help us by by sharing some of your kind of key key principles um around around curriculum planning um so i'll share where my thinking is at the moment because i'm very reluctant um either for me or anyone else to say this is set in stone um and so my where i am in my current thinking is that, um, and this is based on, you know, wide ranging um, engagements with the research, with talking to teachers and pupils and leaders about learning leadership the curriculum. Um, but this is what I think at the moment. Which we un- so I think we need to take a step back actually in terms of the planning and actually think about individual subjects and say, ask ourselves, why is this subject important? Um, what's magical about it? Um, what would children be missing out on if they were not taught design, technology, geography, or history? Because one of the one of the problems has been, and I and I think this is one of the drivers for um, you know the focus within the quality of education judgment was that um, when lots of people were asked about, well, why is this being taught in primary? It would quite often be for the SAT, and in secondary, it would quite often be you know, to do well in the exams, um, public examinations. So those are the byproducts of our work. But we, we need a deeper, um, actually philosophical, rational for why we're teaching these, these subjects. So I think that is the first step. And then you sometimes get people saying, well, I'm, I'm teaching this because it's on the specification or it's on the white rose maths hub materials or whatever. But those, those are great, but... That is not the reason why we're teaching this. You know, we're teaching math because, and we need to be able to answer that question. So 
um, I've, I've actually pulled together a number of quotes to support people in that work. So they might not agree with those quotes. Um, like every human is an artist. Um, Miguel Reese's um, uh, quote about art. But if we don't agree with that, why do we think art is important? Why do we think geography is important? So for me, that is the first piece of work. Um, and then the next one is when we're planning a unit to identify the concepts which have um, which underpin that unit. So, by the way, people are new to the if they're new to the you know to the subject you know in primary um, or they're teaching out of their specialism in secondary. There's no blame. There's if we can't answer these questions, this is a training need, right? So it's never a blame game. And I think it's helpful to remember that in the implementation part of the uh, quality of education judgment, it talks about where teachers need support with their subject knowledge, leaders have put in place appropriate support. Um, so it's about the concepts um, and then um, whether there's a thread of those concepts over time. So that's why this work can't, be, can't all be completed at once. We just have to second on this work. This is likely to build on what they've done before. Or this is setting the background for what might come in the future. Um, so if I take an example of, um, say, the um, if I'm teaching in RE, um, a unit in Key Stage 2 about the creation story in Genesis, um, what are the big ideas that are in there? And so um, we don't have a national curriculum for RE, but they might be in the, um, in the documents prepared by the local authority. Um, but... Uh, one of those would be Genesis, one would be Bible, one would be whatever. So if I'm not sure, then I go to the text that I'm going to be using. And then what is some of the background knowledge that children might need to access in order to be able to engage with that material? So in this example, I want children knowing um, that the, um, the story of Genesis, uh, the story of creation in Genesis uh, is one of two stories. We're going to be looking at the first one. Um, and that it was originally written for the Jewish community. It was written oh, by the Jewish community and it was written in Hebrew. So I'm going to build in some of that background knowledge. Um, and then I'm going to go through that, that, um, those first verses and just pull out any big words that I want. And then I get to think about how am I going to introduce it. So based on my current thinking, I'm going to underpin any new unit wherever possible with a high quality text. Funnily enough, we've got a Bible. Um, and I'm going to take a couple of versions. I'm going to show those to the um, And then how are we going to take the children through their understanding um, and what that might mean for the Christian community, Jewish community? Does it need to be something need to be absolutely true for us to take some meaning about it? So a lot of people think it's not absolutely true, but are they taking some? So these bigger questions around it, in terms of I take them through it. Then I'm going to ask myself, is there anything else I can layer on top of this? And this example, I'm going to include some art. Why? Because the, um, the Bible has been the stimulus for amazing works of art, um, uh, both visual art, and then why not include a YouTube clip of Haydn's creation? So I'm just layering up some quite light-touch stuff. And then I'm going to be asking myself, um, you know, how will I know if my children have learned what I've taught them through the discussion, through the way that we've gone through that? Um, so if, if, if they just complete a load of worksheets with empty, you know, where they've got completely the gaps, 
um, superficially that can look as though they have learned something. But if the children can't talk about it, I personally have not taught it. So it's this thinking about, you know, we've got the concepts, we're going to take the children through some rich material, but actually what is the result of that? How will I know if they've, they've learned it or not? Um, and so I've tightened all that up into just a, a very light touch grid that people can adjust around those questions. I can let you have that if that's helpful. Oh yes, lovely. And we can we can we can share a link to it in our in our podcast notes. And I'm I'm struck listening to you you talk there. Obviously in the in the book you're you're quite um, anti um, those kind of low quality worksheets. Um, and the photocopying that they <laughs> that they lead to and sticking paper on paper, which I agree is absolute insanity. Um, um, but interested in your experience, obviously you, you you've done quite a lot of inspection in in your time, and I'm I'm thinking to visits that that I've done in, in schools as as you know governor and other things. It's it's really depressing when you talk to a child about what they're doing and what they say is I'm filling in the blanks. Um, or you know these kinds of things where they can't they can't really tell you to to what end or what they hope to be to be learning by that it's just the sort of activity for activity's sake yeah and so i think there's quite a subtle and shift that needs to happen there so instead of talking about what well, we're going to do this today you know, we're going to learn about this today mm. and instead of asking children if they've finished you say tell me what you've learned just very tiny shifts Actually, then puts the onus onto um, the learning as opposed to the as opposed to the activity. Um, so my 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 concern about um, a lot of the work that ends up in books is you've identified. You then talk to children, explain you know what what, what they've learned, and they're just quite often not able to tell you. So these are proxies for learning, um, and what really hit home to me. Um, was I was talking to a child about um, her English book. So lovely, she was in year four, um, loved, lovely work in there, but I noticed that a few lessons before, um, she had learned about homophones, um, or at least I assume she had, because she completed the sheet. Um, it had been ticked off, uh, smiley face by the teacher, no doubt having turned some uh, KPI on a spreadsheet green for this child. So I assume she'd learned it. So I said, oh, homophones, those are interesting. What can you tell me about homophones? Not a clue, not a clue. Bright little thing, bright mm. little thing. Why was that? That was because the completion of the task was more important than whether she'd learned it or not. And this is repeated again and again. And so I think as a sector, we're looking for the wrong evidence for whether children have learned something or not. And I think this is where the, the framework is actually very helpful. How are inspectors going to be making... Um, you know, drawing any inferences about whether children have learnt something, um, they're going to be looking at their books, they're going to be talking to them, and they're going to be chatting to the teachers. So, you know, they're not looking at, they're look at not looking at numbers. Um, and so um, there's some real stripping back to do there, which um, is going to take some will, because, um, you know, some of the practices we've, we've embedded feel quite comfortable. And pulling away from those can sometimes feel uncomfortable because the evidence is more nuanced, but actually it's more secure. Mm, and as you say, that sort of 
push for for evidence does does make people feel feel better or more reassured that that material has as, as you say to use that word been covered um and evidence of progress can be tracked and then people who aren't in those classrooms talking to those children can see those things turn green as you say and assume that's happened and they don't need to worry about it um but it, it, as you say, it it it, it's, it it becomes it it becomes comfortable. Although I'm sure a lot of people who are working very hard would say, "Well, it's uncomfortable. I have to do a lot of of work to evidence that the learning, you know, that the learning happened." Um, but as you I'm say, it's driving the wrong thing. Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to develop that if that's okay, mm. because you know that thing of um, you know, going onto spreadsheets and then people who aren't in the room can track progress. The point is that that masks gaps in learning working in that way and then um you know this this obsession with evidence is is um is i think just so damaging for teachers practice so we've got to we've really got to nail this because if i'm teaching a class why have i got to prove evidence to someone who's not in that room about what is going on so anyone coming into my classroom ought to be able to tell what is happening in my classroom. Mm. Okay, we're entering a parallel universe where, you know, in, in some, um, you know, early years and, and um, uh, key stage one, as much time is taken photographing children doing stuff as there is them mm. doing stuff. And, and teachers and teaching assistants not having time to talk to children because they're too busy gathering the evidence. Who is that evidence for? Now, if the children need it, that is one thing, right? My only obligation is to the children in front of me. And frankly, if anyone coming into my classroom can't work out what's going on, whether it's a senior leader or an inspector, they shouldn't be doing the job. Mm. And I mean, that brings me around to, to something else. I was I was wondering, having having read some of your wonderful wonderful words about about leadership and and kind of trust, uh, and how you encourage um, people to go beyond their their comfort zone and and improve by by having that trust in in them. Do you, do you think that there's enough trust in in our schools? I think across the sector, um, no, I don't think there is. However, I think in many schools, individual schools, mm -hmm. and also I have to say many multi-academic trusts, there's enough trust. But that's because leaders are very intentional about developing trust. And it, you know, it just trips off the tongue so easily, but it can be broken so quickly. So there's a lot sitting behind how we develop trust. Um, and I think, you know, at its heart, we have to assume that nobody's coming into work to do a rubbish job. You know, people want to do the right thing, okay? Which isn't to say we sometimes get it wrong. So how are we able to create the conditions where we can hold ourselves and others to account um, for when things do go wrong? Because that is, that's, that's life. And um, so what I think uh, you should be doing is, what I suggest, <laughs> so, um, those... Um, of us who have any kind of leadership role, but we're open about some of the things that are not working for us. Right? Now, not full disclosure, it's and all, but just to let people know, you know, that as we go about our work, particularly if we're looking to improve, it doesn't all go smoothly. Um, that 
people don't get the sense that people in leadership um, do things perfectly because nobody does. And it's not that leaders necessarily set out for that to become, you know, how they're perceived. Sometimes it just kind of happens that we go in the leadership role. It's not always intentional, but I think we have to do something to overcome that and break that. And then my second recommendation is that we always trust first. So if we want trust, if I'm a teacher in the classroom, I have to trust that class first before I expect them to trust and respect me. It always has to come, I think, from the senior, who's the senior person in this relationship? Um, and I think that applies too to um, to the leadership as well. You're, you're risking something, but actually, if they break that trust, boy, have you got the moral ground. That's not why you do it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and um yeah, and, and coming from a place of true humility to make this to make to make trust absolutely work. But I think you know, when it is in place, organizations absolutely fly. Absolutely fly. Exactly. And as you say, some of those perverse practices don't have don't have to happen um in quite the same way if that trust is is there. And 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 building on your point about about humility. Um, humanity is, is is something that I wanted to ask you about. Your your friend and collaborator John Tomsett quoted you when <laughs> he was on the podcast um, um, about being um, you know a human first and a, and a teacher or a professional second. And I think that's something that we we all experienced a bit more, especially in that early early lockdown period where we where we asked people how they were and we genuinely um took the time to have that conversation um what what do you think makes it challenging um for for people to sort of embrace that that humanity um um, i'd be interested to hear your reflections on that um i i think i think people do value it but i don't think um i think it's sometimes just it's it's assumed it's kind of under the radar and also I think it requires stepping away from myself from my ego and thinking how um how, how does this affect my community my people around me uh, and being informed and guided by that so that we we move away from any kind of sense of entitlement if you have um you know a, a role a leadership role in any way and and we shift to the notion of servant leadership that this role is um it is a privilege to serve rather than a kind of badge that i've earned um and you know the the um you know all the great thinkers and all the great writers <laughs> and academics and researchers you know all point to this um and so it's less about me, myself, I, and it's about how does how does this have an impact on we and us? Um, and, and then what follows from that is some, you know, it can't just be theoretical and philosophical. Actually, how does that get translated into practice? So a very quick example from um, John Harvey Jones, who was chair of ICI and then did a great series um, on um, television uh, where he would go around small family businesses and uh, support them to get better. And sometimes his advice was better received than others. But, you know, in his own writing, you know, ICI, and he talks about his time leading that 
in ICL is an immensely complicated business. But one of the things they did was that any any new way of working or system that was being put being suggested, it never got signed off unless it had been thrashed out with the people who were going to have to do that work. Okay. That is um, that is a complete loss of ego. That is true leadership, and some of that is going to be you know quite uncomfortable. But it did mean that anything that then got that did, went through that process, and it didn't need to take forever. Of course, had wings; it would fly because mm. it wasn't imposed on people. So I think there's a message there for some parts of the sector, where you know, just doing more and more without taking something out and putting more and more in without talking through to the people who got to implement it. How is that going to be? How might that be? What might some of the barriers be? What might some of the great benefits be? Um, I think would go a real long, a very long way. So I think any of this sort of um, high known ambition for you know human first professional sector always has to be translated into the context of the day by day. Yeah, and I think there is so much pressure. You know, um, speaking from an organisation that provides people with a lot of support and guidance about all the changing legislation and priorities that a school leaders, you know, should have, um, you know, there is this uh, need to feel like you're doing, you're, you're acting on all of it and pushing everything ahead and, you know, um, but actually being able to take a step back and go, can, can the team legitimately get to this? You know, do, do people have the, the brain space? Um, is, is now the right time? And not always giving into that pressure, which is really understandable because it, it you know, it, it's perpetuated by, you know, by government and others that you should be doing it to say, well, actually, like, when can we do it properly or when can we really engage with it? Or as you say, consult with it, you know, um, but it's hard. It's so hard. Um, and, and thinking about that, that that point around making making change to your working practices, I I read this book and thought, I wonder how if I was a you know in a school and I read this and I thought, yes, Mary, yes, I'm gonna do this. Um, I'm gonna stop doing that and I'll start doing this. Um, but I don't know how to have this conversation uh, with my colleagues about sort of changing the status quo. What would you suggest I do? Well, um, I think it's really important that we remember that we all have the right to ask why. Hmm. So if I'm a relatively um, new member of the profession um, and I'm being asked to put in a lot of data into spreadsheets, and I, I'm quite entitled to say, well, who's, can you just talk, walk me through who is going to use this? and what it actually means. Now, if someone can justify further upstream why this is important, then we go ahead with it. But, the, but a lot of it cannot be justified, okay? Why are we marking every piece of work? Now, there's less of that has to be said in, you know, with the, what's happened in lockdown. Mm. But there's still, there's still a lot of, um, oh, we've got to mark in depth two pieces of work every half term in a secondary school. What's that about? Who's, why? Why? So if someone could justify it to me, that is fine. But the point is a lot of this stuff cannot be justified. Um, and so um, I think I think wherever we are in the sector, we have we have the chance to ask 
one. And then if we have just do it really quickly, um, because mostly, you know, there's some, if it's that important, someone upstream is going to be checking it. And if, they, if I've got it really wrong, they'll pick it up. And if they don't pick it up, it can't have been that important in the first place. I mean, I'm absolutely brutal on this, because if we don't, then we're going to end up with poor quality stuff being shoved on children's desks because we haven't had time to look for lovely resources. So for me, this is a moral issue. It's not just you know, refining processes so that our own work gets better because we're not having to do things that, you know, are just getting in the way of having a proper professional life, but they're getting in the way of us doing some proper thinking and research of beautiful stuff for children, which doesn't land out of the sky. Okay, so this is this is more than um, just trimming back um, to make our lives easier. This is about creating the space to do that deep thinking. Um, and to follow up on some interesting websites that are going to deepen children's learning rather than um, compromise it, which plenty of material does. Yes, I like the way that um, you know your your book isn't a sort of manual for like how to how to get the job done in the shortest possible time kind of you know businessy speak self help book. It it actually says you know how do you prioritize that that deep thinking and the things that are really going to push forward the learning and, and minimize some of the, the noise. And, you know, uh, if you read it like I did, you could probably just crave and think I'm desperate to have some time to think and engage with materials, with subjects, with, with these sorts of things and, and, and not do some of those um, lower order tasks or not spend so much time thinking about them. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I also like the way that you talked about um, the, the difference between a, a cynic and a sceptic. And I'll let you explain in case I get it wrong. <laughs> but I thought that was a really helpful way of thinking about how to, ha how to have some of these conversations. Well, um, they've both got ancient philosophical um, roots. But at, at its heart now, you know, cynicism is... Um, lands in a place of um, thinking things can't be changed, it's quite depressing, and it also looks through at the world through the gaze of stuff simply cannot get better. You know, so in other words, why try? Um, that's not actually how it started off, but I'll leave it. <laughs> um, healthy scepticism, though, is different. It's a, it's a place of intellectual curiosity that's that I, I think we all need a dose of, particularly when we've got so much stuff now entering the educational domain in relation to uh, cognitive science, psychology, which has actually been around for a long time. It's just it's now um, through the efforts of organisations like Research Ed and, and Seneca Learning and others, um, they're now becoming part of um, the discourse. Now, if we just take that lock, stock and barrel, we're going to get in a muddle. So it's about saying, um, you know, paraphrase Dylan Williams, you know, best bets in terms of absorbing this, seeing if it will work in my context. So, and that's a good sceptical position rather than just taking um, as plucking sort of sweets out, you know, out of a tray, uh, oh, this is nice and shiny and it's going to taste nice. So to have a bit of healthy scepticism um, about that. And then I would also extend it to processes which we suspect are redundant and bloated in schools, the sceptical. Healthy skepticism, but it comes from a place of, um, of uh, more optimism that we're just questioning this to make sure that what we decide to spend our precious, our precious time on is actually 
uh, more likely to reap uh, dividends and rewards. Um, I should yeah I should mention to listeners that your your um, book sort of has a, has a really brilliant sort of synthesis of, of of lots of of different ideas around around philosophy and as you say cognitive science and other things and um, um, I, I, you know Marie Kondo and um, William William Morris um, great great thinkers on some of this as well I think you've just you just managed to cover so many um interesting aspects of it but I think we can all relate if anyone's been doing any sort of tidying up out during uh, during these quieter lockdown months you know if you don't need these things or you haven't used them or they're not serving the purpose that you need them to maybe you can you can let them let them go um but uh yeah really really great stuff in there um i, I, have, I have to tell you i, I put the Marie Kondo in um partly tongue-in-cheek although i i do think she's absolutely great but in, i was talking to someone the other day and apparently there's um a, 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 a movement at um the educational faculty at harvard apparently someone was telling me um are we going to condo um are we going to try and condo what's happening in school you know, again this idea is looking right back so i felt validated as well so um yeah just about you know look at things through actually what value is this adding to my life and what value in a professional sense is this adding to children's learning if it's not i give myself permission to get from it uh, Mary, you you mentioned that um, I, I'm just interested to to hear talking about how how schools have have changed the way that they they do things. Have you got any examples, any schools that you that you know that you could you could tell me about some of their approaches? Yes, I've got a couple of examples. So um, you know, I referred earlier to the fact that you know if subject knowledge is not as strong as it might be, um, this is a professional development need. Um, never a blame game. So one head of a primary school was concerned that uh, colleagues didn't have um, the range of experience and knowledge about children's literature beyond really Dahl, Williams and a few others. Nothing wrong with those, but obviously the canon is, is, not, is bigger than that. Um, so was intentional about how he used the time for staff meetings on a regular basis, but this is how he started to talk, is that uh, colleagues came in for their normal staff meeting and um, there on the table was a pile of children's books uh, especially for the meeting and he just said to them right um, get yourselves a cup of tea or coffee select a book and spend the next 45 minutes or so just reading it or skimming it or browsing it and then we'll come back and check um, you know how things what, what you thought for the last 15 minutes and what he found was that virtually everybody wants to take one of the books home now, that wasn't the intention, but that was the consequence of thinking carefully about, well, we've got this time. Are we going to um, talk about things that could be put into an email? Or are we going to use that time where I know that something purposeful will happen? And so why did that happen? Why did teachers want to take the books home? Because we're all stimulated, whether we're adults or children, by interesting stuff to think about. And so it's about tapping into the opportunities that actually already reside within the school structures to be able to do that. Um, and then an example from secondary, um, uh, Sean Allison from the Durrington Research School, um, they're very intentional again about their uh, departmental and faculty meetings. And so they're all about the material and the knowledge that is going to be talk, 
taught the pupils and students uh, between that meeting and the next next meeting. And so, uh, what are some of the misconceptions likely to be? How are we going to tackle those? Um, teachers actually modelling a bit of the teaching so that others can hear. Someone having done some in-depth reading, sharing their their ideas on that. So within the context of the school day, the deep work is happening rather than it just being haphazard or just, you know, left to chance or just being a worthy aspiration. Something concrete has to happen as a result of us saying this is important. I, yeah, I love those examples, particularly the idea of sort of, you know, putting people in the position of, of learners, presenting them with that material that can kind of capture their imagination and, and kind of re- reconnecting with that with that feeling um, must be really, really powerful. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Mary, a bit about a bit about governors. We have a lot of governors um, listening in, which is which is great. And appreciate that quite a bit of what we've been we've been saying about um, stripping away some of this evidence and 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 obviously we know with um, no external data this year, worried that, that that you know that group of people might not be sure about how to fulfil their responsibilities. Um, what, what what kind of advice would you give would you give governors? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because it's all very well for me to say you know strip this right back. But then what is the kind of evidence that is needed for um, those who do have responsibility to know the headlines of how children are getting on within the school, uh, whether that's governors or trustees? Um, Now, the problem hitherto has been that the data that's been supplied has been neither valid nor reliable, and the sector has pitted itself that it is. So the first thing is to say, well, what we had didn't tell us anything in any way. However, what should we do um, instead? So it's actually something I'm working on with um, a group in Norfolk, of Norfolk schools, is that um, we need to be taking samples of children's work. We do not capture everything, but we take samples of children's work on the basis that the curriculum itself is the progression model. I have taught it, the teachers taught it. Have the children got it? How do we know? Um, and if any colleagues have seen the film Austin Butterfly, where little Austin, who um, is is taught by his teacher and with feedback from the teacher and the peers how to do an accurate drawing of a swallowtail butterfly, and we see at the end of that short film um, the iteration, the journey that Austin has been on. So it's possible to see by looking at samples of children's work whether a child has made progress or not. Teacher can talk about it, the child can talk about it. Any external person would be able to make a judgment about whether that child has made progress or not. So, how might we convey that to um, to governors? So, what I'm working on at the moment, it it it, it, um, it might get a bit messy, but I and people think there's something there. Is to think of it on a as a sort of quadrant um, where we've got um, children who um, have um, put in a lot of effort, but actually they haven't really learned very much um, on two different axes. And then in the top right-hand quadrant is where you want all children to be. They've put in the effort and um, they have um, gained uh, sufficient knowledge um, which they can do something with as a result of what they've been taught. And then I, as the teacher, will just put a cross in each of those four elements of the quadrant 
uh, to say, in my view, professional view, this is where the children are. And then what would happen is my line manager would uh, cross-reference that with some samples of children's work, and then that would go to governors. To validate it, you just take some samples along to that meeting and say, this is where we think the child's done really well, particularly as they were struggling before. That's why they're in that top right-hand quadrant. And this one has fallen behind because X, Y, and Z. So that you've got more purchase on what is happening, that you've got a sense of what has been taught and whether children have got it or not. Because the current system is still locked in to this idea that children make so many points progress in a primary school. That went in 2014. Uh, we've still got systems that are underpinned by that kind of um, me methodology, methodological um, mindset, even though it might be branded something different from point two levels. We're still in that situation for most schools. So um, I think it's fundamentally flawed, and I think it is intellectually dishonest. I'm not saying that we are dishonest if we yeah. use it. It's just we've got, no, let's pretend it's telling us anything. That sounds um, fascinating, and uh, yeah, I mean uh, the uh, the the conversation at uh, my next outcomes uh, committee meeting is going to be interesting. Thank you for that <laughs> stimulus um, for discussion. I think I think that's um, a really a, a really interesting work. I look forward to hearing about how it develops. And um, finally, just uh, I always like to, to to ask my esteemed guests for their their thoughts on on the future. Um, so just sort of thinking that that bigger picture piece around assessment um, and and inspection. Um, what do you think this this um, period of, of of you know partial school closure, lockdown, etc., uh, might mean for those um, as schools get back on track? Um, external. Uh, assessment in terms of public exams, mm. I think that's still very much being thrashed out. I I don't think that's an easy one at all. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that the fairest way is for public examinations to go ahead. That is the fairest way of assessing where children are. However, the variability of children's experiences um, means that there are more and more questions being asked by people who would normally be strongly in defence of public examinations, myself included, actually questioning whether that can ever be fair. Now, what you do instead uh, is a whole other story. I'm not suggesting for a moment it is, it is easy. Um, as far as Key Stage 2 is concerned, um, I don't know, I'm going to put my neck out here. I think, I think, um, I think it might, um, it might end, it might serve as the death knell for key stage two, particularly the English, mm. uh, the English writing, which, you know, is a complete nonsense. And so I anticipate um, that uh, work like um, Chris Whedon's and Daisy Christogoulou's um, no, more, um, no More Marking Comparative Judgment work, I think we're going to see, I'm going to think we're going to see a system based on that. I hope so. It's much more... Um, robust it is much more um uh, uh helpful for the colleagues involved in it and it actually is talking about the authentic material children are producing which is their written work as opposed to being distorted by completely nonsense criteria 
You know, if a child hasn't got so many frontal verbials, you know, they get marked down. Well, what's that about? Completely potty. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? So my final thoughts are that it's really important to be optimistic in all this and to recognise that, you know, we are making a difference to our children. Um, and, and I would just finish up by drawing on um, Rosabeth Moskanter's work. So she's an academic um, professor at Harvard University, and she spent decades researching the indicators of high-performing organisations, whether they're in the public sector or, um, or private. And when we talk about high-performing in her terms, it's about those with a moral purpose, those doing the right thing in the right way, um, in every sense. And she has six great keys, which I'll just end with. <laughs> so she says the first is, is that the characteristics of, of people working in those organisations, they, they show up. They show up in their complete selves to do their work. Um, they speak up. So they're not afraid to, to say what they think might be wrong and affirm what is right. And I think a lie to that is that we need to encourage those of our colleagues who might not be confident to speak up and to share their ideas. Um, the next one is to, um, is to look up, um, to remind ourselves of why we're doing this work. It's the bigger reason for doing the work. Um, team up. So by and large, our work is better when we're collaborating with other people, when we're thinking with other people. It's not to say we don't do search and individual pieces of work on, but by and large, when we're working on something, it's really good to team up. Uh, the next one is never give up. So she's got a great face. She says, um, it never feels like success in the middle of it. It's always <laughs> going to feel that's really helpful. And then the last one, which I think is probably the most important, is to lift others up. Lift others up. I think it's one of the greatest gifts we can give to another human being is to encourage them. And we've all had experiences when we've been on the receiving end of that. Quite often it's been a child, isn't it? And oh, it's not too hot. So just a bit more of that. And just remember we're human beings first, we're professionals second, but the young people we work with, they're human beings and they're learners second. And um, I do actually believe that we will come through this um, better and stronger in many of the systems that I think have got in the way of us doing our best work. Well, thank you. That's a really inspiring note to end on. So grateful to you, Mary, for taking the time out to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.